Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. Howdy, y'all. Today is our 10th episode. It's been a lot of fun recording this podcast. I've really enjoyed creating it and hearing from you. I think that's probably the best part. Your feedback has helped shape what the podcast is. 10 episodes feels like a really big milestone to me. And because of it, I wanted to do something special and a little bit different. But before I get to kind of what today's episode is all about, I wanted to share some special news with y'all. I started a Patreon. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Patreon is a website that you can go to and support your favorite creators. So that can be artists, both in music and in actual paintings, um, or podcasters like the one you're listening to now. So anyway, if you are interested in supporting the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, you can go over to patreon.com backslash marine bio life. It's a monthly subscription from $2 to $12. Those are the tiers that I have. And what you get from it is anything from good karma to bonus episodes. Head over to patreon.com backslash marine bio life to learn more. And now we're going to talk about today's show. So like I said, I wanted to do something special and a little bit different. Uh, When most people think of marine biology, they think of being out in the field. And one of the best things about field work is the amount of stories that you collect just from daily life. Stories were one of my main ideas when I was starting this podcast and the website. I think swapping field stories is one of the most fun and illustrative ways to highlight what being a marine biologist is really like. It's why I ask, what's your favorite field story to tell to every person I have on the show? So today, I have a couple of tales for you. Some are my own, some I have borrowed from friends. I want to share these with you to highlight the fact that, despite best efforts, things can happen in the field that you just can't plan for. What matters is not exactly what happens, but more how you react when the proverbial stuff hits the fan. You've got to be quick on your feet, let things go, and accept whatever luck may come your way. Oh, and as best as possible remain calm. We talk a lot about diving on the show, and it can be a very important skill to know as some jobs do require that you are dive certified. Uh, If you dive for a university, they may be part of the American Academy of Underwater Sciences, which is AAUS for short. And if you're diving for the university, they may require that you actually get AAUS scientific diving certified before you can help with their research. So I should add here that in order to become a scientific diver, you need to already be actually dive certified. Scientific diving is meant to teach you skills to use underwater, like navigation and search patterns, uh, not how to dive. So scientific diving is something that I did while I was at school. I I decided to do it because I wanted to dive more, and I figured if I became a scientific diver, I would get more opportunities to do so. So I signed up for FAU scientific diving course and I show up my first day at the pool. Uh, So for those of you that are not dive certified, most initial dive trainings occur in pools because they are shallow controlled environments. So you learn a bunch of different skills and once these skills are mastered, then you go out and do your checkout dive in the ocean or quarry depending on where you are. If you're not dive certified yet and would like to 
would like to be, excuse me, please invest in a trip and get yourself dive certified somewhere that will take you into the ocean. I've not done it, but diving in a quarry sounds really boring. My first dive was in the Atlantic Ocean and I saw lots of corals, schools of fish, and even a green moray eel. My friends at Dovin Quarry saw rocks, so go to the ocean. Anyway, back to my scientific diving story. So I show up to my first day of scientific diving training. I'm lugging, I've lugged all my gear out of my vehicle to the pool deck, and I'm now standing around with my classmates, one of which is Liz Dutra, who was on the podcast for episode six. That's actually how I met her. So our instructor comes out on the deck and he's this big burly man and he's got this very deep voice and very serious demeanor. And most divers can be pretty chill, but this guy definitely meant business. So he comes out onto the deck and he tells us to kit up our dive gear. So I attach my BC, the vest looking thing, to my tank and then attach my regulator, which has all the hoses and the mouthpiece that you actually breathe out of. I attach that to the BC and the tank. And then the instructor kind of looks around and he's like, all of your gear, mask, fins, hook it all on there and make sure you've got air. So I find the various clips and kind of finagle and get my mask all clipped in there. So it's all nice and secure with my fins. I twist on the tank regulator, kind of perks up, check my pressure gauge. I have 3000 PSI. For those of you that dive in bar, I don't know what that is. I've dove in bar once. So anyway, I have 3000 PSI. I take a couple of breaths out of the mouthpiece. The air flows easily. All right, I'm good to go. All right, everyone got air? This is the instructor again. He's pacing back and forth along the pool deck, watching all of us rig our gear. After hearing confirmation, he says, great, turn it off. So we did. Purge all the air out of your hoses. So I hold the mouthpiece down until the hissing stops, and I have no more air left in any of my hoses. Now throw your entire kit into the deep end of the pool. We all paused, looked at each other, wary smiles on our faces. Is this guy serious? Gear into the deep end of the pool, he repeated. The six of us obligingly picked up our gear and heaved it into the deepest part of the pool. We watched as our kits all nicely clipped and snipped together, just sank to the bottom of the deep end, to the bottom of 13 feet. For my listeners outside of the U.S., this is nearly four meters. The instructor paused for effect, then, looking us squarely, without a trace of amusement, he says, this is a pass or fail test. Get your gear on. Do not come to the surface until you have every last piece of your equipment properly fastened. So for those of you who may be unfamiliar, putting on dive gear can take a minute or two, sometimes four or five, depending on if you get stuck or can't get your BC belt tightened because the Velcro part is stuck to the back of the vest. Holding your breath for that long really isn't an option for most people, myself included. So again, we all have the wary smiles looking around at each other. For real, is is this guy really, really for real? There's no smile from the instructor. Go, he said, and we all jumped in. Now, I know this isn't exactly a story from the field, but it does illustrate the necessity for two very important skills that you will need in field work the ability to remain calm, and the ability to think things through. If I had panicked about the task ahead of me, hold my breath while I struggled to get all of my dive gear on underwater, I likely wouldn't have found the simple solution, and I probably wouldn't have gotten my scientific diving certification. Panicking in any situation is really not good, but particularly so while you're diving. Instead, I took a deep breath 
and jumped in, focusing on the obvious problem first. I needed to be able to breathe. When I reached it, I turned my tank on, blindly found my regulator, and began to breathe. Then I was able to slowly put my dive gear on. I'm sure not all instructors do this, but I thought this particular tactic was quite brilliant in his scientific diving course. It allowed the instructor to see how we performed under a bit of pressure and what our base diving skills were like, and I'm sure provided him a bit of entertainment as well. The next story is not my own. It's actually from my old coworkers, in fact, my old boss. He used to go down to Biscayne Bay in Miami quite often, and the environment down there is mostly ocean. Um, It's pretty salty, actually. I think it's almost the same salinity as ambient seawater down there. And they were doing otter trawls, just doing different types of research. And an otter trawl, for those who are not familiar, it has a, it's a 10 foot net and it's got about a six foot opening and it has all these like different doors and chains that kind of bump along the bottom. So it scares most things away that can move quickly. They don't, the trawl is towed behind a boat and the boat is not moving very fast, truly a trawling speed. So trawling speeds is like maybe four to six miles an hour knots ish. Um, so it's not a very fast pace and most things that can swim well, get out of the way quickly. Um, some things that you would find in the otter trawl are things that kind of like live on the bottom and again, don't move quickly. So anyway, they're pulling in the otter trawl and it's kind of like a few days into this and they're pulling it in, pulling it in. Oh my gosh, we have something really big things. The, my boss is like backing the boat down. He like sees something kind of thrashing around in the net and they think they have a shark and they pull it up. And holy cow, it is a 10-foot crocodile. Now, the American crocodile has always been considered very rare in Florida, but habitat loss in southeastern Florida has been the main reason for population decline. They're actually listed as endangered, and they are extremely, extremely rare to ever see. And for the fact for them to catch one in a net is pretty insane. So now you have this 10-foot croc that is in your net that you need for research, And you need to get it out without theoretically damaging your net too much and causing harm to the croc. And also, because these crocs are so rare, you need to report this croc to all the different agencies. So this actually, he ended up reporting it to FWC, which is Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. And it is our governing natural resource body in Florida. And then FWC actually said, you know, this is so rare you need to go up the food chain. And it was actually ended up being reported to Noah. So they still have this croc in this net though. And they tried to kind of like shake it out and shimmy the boat and like dunk it. And he's pretty wound in there. So my boss has to get there and like take the net very delicately and unwind it from around this croc snout barehanded. They tried it with a boat hook which is kind of has a mushroom tip and it doesn't really grab things really well. I tried it with a boat hook. It didn't work. So my boss gets in there with his hand and unwinds it right next to the croc snout. He said the croc was the chillest thing ever though. And just kind of like laid there waiting for them to help. And then as soon as it could, it just swam along in its way. The first time I heard this story, we were back at that site. It was right after Hurricane Irma. And the water, which is usually pretty clear, or at least the visibility is, you know, a few feet, the water was like chocolate milk. So you really couldn't see anything. So my boss tells me the story about how they caught a 10-foot croc in this exact spot. He's like, all right, well, that was a great story time. Time to get in the water. So I'm like, oh, well, great. 
You're supposed to tell me this stuff when we're done, not when we're about to get in the water. So the rest of the day and the rest of the trip, because we actually did need to come back to this site a couple of times through the next several days, I was playing different mental games to try to keep myself focused on the task and not to be focusing on the fact that there could be a croc swimming two feet away from me and I would have no idea. So I have another story from one of my coworkers. As a turtle biologist in Florida, one of the most common ways to study turtles is by conducting morning surveys to observe and record sea turtle activity. Sea turtles nest at night, with a few exceptions, so the survey allows researchers to collect all the data possible from the night before without missing a crawl. This involves being on the beach a half an hour before sunrise to look for turtle tracks leading in and out of the sea. Often, surveys are conducted on ATVs, which makes researchers look even more official as most parts of the state do not allow driving on the beach, except for those with special permits. As such, sea turtle researchers get asked a lot of questions by those who recognize the ATV and or the logo. But sometimes they get mistaken for other officials on the beach. And this is one of those times as told by a field researcher who is not me. I'm driving down the beach on one of the more popular beach entrances. The sun isn't quite up. And this man comes running up to me, waving his arms frantically. Where is he? He starts shouting at me. His eyes are wild and he's in complete panic mode. What do you mean? Where is who? I responded, caught just completely off guard. My brother, he was in the water and now he's gone. And why are you not calling anyone? Panicked, I pulled out my phone and frantically began to call 911. When the operator asked me for details, all I could tell her was that there was a man missing at the beach. In the meantime, my new crazed friend was still walking around, arms raised, watching the ocean, yelling, where is he? I'm thinking there's a drowning man or a man that has just drowned. I'm panicking at this point. So I have the operator on the phone. Could you please provide more details? The operator insists. I explain my situation. A man came running up to me on the beach and seems to be desperately searching for his missing brother. It sounded like he was in the water and he no longer is or he can no longer see him. It's pretty calm, so we definitely don't see him. And this is all I know. I felt silly for not being able to provide more details. After another minute, he, the desperate man kind of turned. He looked up at the dune where there was a different man coming down the dune, making his way onto the beach. Oh, there he is, he exclaims and walks towards his presumed brother, leaving me on the phone with the 911 operator and a still rapidly beating heart. Never mind, I think, I slowly said to the operator. He wasn't in the water at all. It looks like he's coming down from the parking lot. The pair of brothers walk by me without so much a look or nod in my direction. So I hung up with the operator and continued my survey, slowly calming my heart along the way. So I wanted to highlight the story because when you're the first one on the beach in the morning or even doing surveys at night, you can come across all sorts of unusual situations. In episode two with Jessica Pate, she tells a tale about coming across a local on the beach at night in Africa and why you shouldn't eat the goat. It's pretty funny if you haven't heard that one yet. But we all try to do the best we can, and we want to help people in a seeming time of need. But sometimes situations are different than they appear, and you just have to roll with it. You learn people's skills, how to stay calm in weird situations, and how to talk to the general public. And that's one of the most valuable lessons that I had learned during my time doing sea turtle surveys. I have one final story for you guys. Again, this isn't my story, but it is a lesson to learn from and one that I constantly have in my head. So I have a friend, I will not name names again, but I have a friend that was offshore conducting different research. 
And she wasn't very far offshore, but her boat ran out of oil. And you know your boat ran out of oil usually when all the alarms start going off because your engine is starting to overheat. For those of you that are not mechanically minded, you cannot run machinery without oil. You will just burn it up and then you will have to replace it. And boat engines are not cheap. So she immediately turns off the boat and now they're floating there in the ocean without oil and without a way (laughs) to get oil, really. Thankfully, they're not that far offshore. So she calls a friend and requests for them to go get her oil. And she swims into shore, picks it up at the beach and has to swim, (laughs) has to swim a container of oil back onto the boat where she can replenish the supply and go back into shore. So lesson here is make sure you've got oil and gas on the boat. Otherwise, you'd be swimming to shore. Fortunately for her, at least she was close to shore. Could have been a way different and not good situation. And it is something that I think about quite often before I take my boat out. So I hope you found some amusement and maybe a shred of wisdom in today's show. If you liked it, I would love to know. Storytelling is something that I love. And if you dig it, I'll make sure we have more on the show. So my action item for you today is simple. Think about a time where things may have gone a little wonky in your life. It could have been a big event that got rained on, an accident that led to an interesting result. Whatever it may be, what positive takeaway did you have from the snafu? Did you learn something valuable? Did things go wrong, make the experience even better? I'd love to hear your insight as well as your thoughts on this episode. Thanks so much for listening, y'all, and I'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment under the show notes at marinebio.life or send me an email at hello at marinebio.life. We'll catch you next time on So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist.